a good crowd this morning. Good morning. Anyone? Good morning. Thank you, Dan. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. On September 26th, 2018, we have a bit of a multimedia extravaganza today with multiple speakers, uh, thanks to Dr. Anlamir. Uh, uh, I want to remind us we are in the midst of um, service club celebration season, and hopefully some were celebrating last night at the Garden Inn, and we will... I don't have them this week, I'm afraid, but hopefully in the next week we will have um, some presentations to make to our um, honorees at the 25-year and above level of service, of, the, of whom there are quite a few, or at least several. So um, we are hosting a Global Health Summit, or Dr. Amr Al-Namir is hosting a Global Health Summit today and has several speakers lined up and actually presentations which will extend past 9 o'clock for those who can stay. You'll get one and a half credits of CME. It is U5BM, as we have on the screen as the code, U5BM, not 5UBM. Um, just a reintroduction, Dr. Alan Lemire is now with us, is it four years? Almost Three. four. Almost four years uh, as uh, um, now Section Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology, but also Director of our Pediatric Global Health Programs, has had uh, independent individual work in Syria um, and Jordan, uh, sorry, and Jordan, and is going to have his colleagues share with us more about his and their work uh, in the Middle East. Um, so, Amr, thanks for thanks for putting this together. Good morning, everybody. Um, the uh, the point of these last few days was to highlight um, some of our collaborative work that the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth's Global Health Program has been. Um, doing and some of our um, global health collaborations. As you know, the Children's Hospital at Dartmouth's global health um, initiatives, along with Dartmouth College's global health initiatives, are one of the things that drew me over to here from Cleveland. And um, I was very impressed with the rich um, um, history of global health outreach and global health initiatives. And as um, the program director for Global Child Health, every year or two, we highlight some of our activities. A year and a half ago, we had a, uh, an evening um, symposium uh, that we focused on our efforts in Tanzania. And it was interesting to see that we started with three or four speakers that, that had extensive experience with our um, outreach in Tanzania. And we ended up adding two more speakers because there were people that are doing things that we didn't even know about. So we always believe in dialogue and we always believe in communication and we always believe that people should be aware of what we're all doing because we're all doing some very interesting things. Now, this year we wanted to focus on Jordan and our activities in Jordan. We have some excellent collaborative models that focus on um, it, whether it's a school model, collaborative models, where we focus um, on linking the upper valley with um, school children in Jordan, whether it's underserved public school children in Jordan, or whether it's the Syrian refugees that sometimes work the second shift. The um, other activities that we have, we have some clinical outreach and we have clinical care that we develop, uh, that we um, that we either collaborate with or we deliver. I'm going, I've been in uh, Jordan for about five, six years, um, thanks to um, our program allowing me to go and um, do some uh, research and advocacy on celiac disease, as well as um, collaboration with the Jordan University of Science and Technology and Mota University in Jordan, in addition to some clinical care with the Syrian American Medical Society, where I met Dr. Wa'el Hussami. Throughout these, I also met 
Hanin Ode, who's our other Grand Round speaker, and she'll be our first speaker today. So without further ado, I'd like to highlight some of what we're doing, and then we're going to end up after, it's going to be about an hour and a half to two hours today, we're going to end up with um, some other um, um, brief snapshots about our linking between um, the Upper Valley um, CHAT program, which is Children's Health Awareness via Telecom, linking to the Syrian refugee school children under the uh, um, guidance and help and collaboration with the Royal Health Awareness Society in Jordan. And then we're going to um, share a medical student perspective from Hannah Shahade, who will be sharing her experience with the Syrian American Medical Society um, expertise. And it's so interesting. Hannah Shahade is a, a medical student from UVM. So I was very um, almost astounded about how much um, um, it's a small world. And you'd think that linking Jordan and the Upper Valley or New England would occur in one place, but you find all these multiple small linkages. So I'll start off with um, Hanin Aude. She is um, a graduate of Jordan University, and she went on to obtain her master's in, in, in sciences at the London School of Economics. She um, attended Harvard Kennedy School Executive Education Program in NGO Management, and she's a certified PMP. She has 10-plus experience working in the development domain in Jordan. She leads programs and initiatives in education, health, capacity building, and social entrepreneurship and youth empowerment and employment. Prior to her appointment at the Royal Health Awareness Society in 2015 as Director General, she worked as a Programs Initiatives Manager for the King Abdullah II Fund for Development as an Assistant Manager for Price Waterhouse Coopers Middle East Public Sector Institute. The Royal Health Awareness Society, a Queen Lanya initiative, is focused on promoting healthy behaviors and lifestyle for Jordanians among schools, youth, and communities at large and focuses on hygiene promotion, physical activity, and tobacco control. So we're lucky to welcome her as our first speaker for Grand Rounds. And podium's yours. Um, thank you, everybody, and thank you, Dr. Amir, uh, for the introduction and for uh, making it possible for me to come here and uh, meet all the, um, the great people we have in the room, um, but also the partners and the um, uh, different uh, stakeholders that uh, are involved in our uh, collaboration. Um, so I'm just going to, yeah, this works. So. <laughs> Could move. Is my voice clear and loud? Okay, perfect. So, uh, our uh, I'm Hanin Ode again. Uh, I work for the Royal Health Awareness Society in Jordan, <coughs> and I'm gonna be talking about our work in Jordan um, at large, but also uh, a bit more uh, zoom in a bit more some of the programs that were of interest to the collaboration that we have done with Chad. Uh, just an overview of Jordan. Jordan is a country in the Middle East. Uh, its uh, population size is amounting to 10 plus million uh, people, with 1.4 of those uh, um, uh, are refugees. Uh, we are a lower, sometimes lower middle income country. In other classifications, we're an, a higher middle income country. But in all cases, we are a middle-income country. <laughs> um, 
And for those of you who've heard about Jordan, you've probably heard about Petra. It's one of the seven wonders of the world as well. Um, looking at the health profile in Jordan, we are uh, a, a country that suffers a lot from non-communicable diseases. Um, mainly cardiovascular, uh, diabetes, cancers, and respiratory diseases. They amount up to 76% of total deaths as per the 2014 report of WHO. We have high prevalence of anemia amongst children under five um, and women. We have also very high tobacco uh, uh, prevalence, uh, unfortunately, amongst the youthful population. Uh, maybe one thing I have uh, missed to mention about Jordan, that over 75 uh, or 70% of the population is under the age of 35, which makes this youth bulge uh, an opportunity, but also a missed opportunity if not, if not invested uh, in properly. And this, uh, when we have 25% uh, of 13 to 15 year olds are smokers, and are using uh, cigarettes, they're smoking cigarettes, let alone the burdens that we have in, in hookah or shisha or how you may call it. Uh, uh, so we are really um, uh, burdened by the tobacco uh, issue in Jordan. And um, certainly we have, uh, like I said, diabetes and obesity are amongst the highest uh, uh, in the region. If we look at the children's profile, uh, health profile in Jordan, we would also see that we have a couple of issues that are, of, uh, uh, that are worth looking at more closely. We have a, a student population size of around 2 million students. Uh, although literacy rates are amongst uh, the, higher, the highest in the, in, uh, the region and literacy rates are, are good, but if we look at the, the quality of the education and the educational system outcomes, um, we find that there are, there's a lot to do in that uh, area. Um, we, we have uh, oral uh, hygiene issues. Uh, we have anemia issues. We have uh, the tobacco prevalence, like I said. And a lot of the students are physically inactive. Uh, they don't perform any kind of sports, and uh, there is huge awareness uh, that is lacking uh, provided by the Ministry of Education or by the Ministry of Health. So the Royal Health Awareness Society came in to uh, work on connecting these two worlds, health and education, and, and bring this uh, type of um, uh, awareness uh, programs to the students. But we realized um, also that awareness alone uh, will not do it. So we really need to work on behavioral change. And for that to happen, we need to work on advocacy. We really need to work on the, a conducive environment that would make the student uh, live a healthy lifestyle and adopt a healthy behavior. We also look at um, other uh, school environment issues uh, uh, such as um, um, you know, the, the access to drinking water, the uh, uh, clean uh, toilets, uh, and so on. And um, uh, the issue of nutrition and what they are being uh, 
sold at school shops or canteens. Uh, we, we see that there are no cafeterias, uh, no hot meals that are nutritious and healthy enough. Uh, children go and uh, a journey of a student is uh, uh, really walking to school, which is right beside his uh, or her house. Uh, they end up, uh, they live without breakfast. Uh, they have uh, uh, three, four, five packets of chips, uh, sugary drinks. They go home. They do not leave their house to play. They sit uh, maybe on their mobiles, maybe uh, with their uh, brothers or sisters, not doing much. And this is all building... Uh, the case for higher risks of uh, non-communicable disease at a much earlier age. And we have the capacity issue also, speaking of the environment of the school, uh, because of the Syrian refugees' uh, influx. The Jordan government has taken on its shoulders uh, a humanitarian commitment towards all the refugees that have come in and opened up hospitals, care centers, healthcare centers, and schools for... Um, to provide uh, education and health services to all these refugees. And this has definitely strained the public sector in, in these services. And some of uh, the students uh, have to you know, attend double shifts. Some of the schools um, uh, had to turn into being double shift uh, schools to accommodate these and absorb these numbers. Um, the Royal Health Awareness Society is a Queen Rania initiative it was uh, uh, established in 2005 and uh, with a clear vision of having a, a healthy and safe Jordan. And to do that, we uh, both uh, raise awareness of the population and also try to build uh, a healthy, conducive uh, environment. Uh, some of our core programs uh, are healthy schools, a healthy community clinic to provide NCDs management and prevention at community level, at primary healthcare level. Uh, think first for injury prevention, generations protected against risky behaviors of addiction on tobacco and drugs. And we have Shababna, which translates into Arabic as our youth, uh, empowering youth to conduct their own healthy uh, uh, initiatives in their local communities and universities. And the uh, last uh, uh, project uh, is the Healthy Kitchen, where uh, we will show you a little bit more and uh, talk a little bit more about the nutritional aspect of that, uh, considering that we've had some uh, support from uh, Chad towards the meals and uh, celiac disease students uh, uh, who had uh, benefited from our collaboration with Chad. Um, most of our... More than 70% of our work is really focused on uh, schools because we are focused on prevention. And through the different initiatives that we have that are specifically related to nutrition, uh, through uh, uh, Project WET is around water conservation. Jordan is the fifth poorest country of water resources uh, in, in the world. So the importance of water and understanding uh, the value of, of water and how to conserve it also stands important. And uh, this, uh, the first logo here represents the program 
uh, that we work with schools on, which is the National Healthy Accreditation uh, Program. We take schools in a journey of five years uh, so that they become healthy and safe in terms of uh, cleanliness, hygiene, uh, uh, safety measures, but also uh, health education. Uh, we look at what the canteens are offering. We look at what the health teachers are providing in terms of awareness sessions, in terms of community engagement. Also, the parents component uh, is necessary to make sure that all these messages are reiterated and confirmed and enhanced uh, when the students go back home. Um, we, so far, uh, have been, uh, uh, we've had around 600 uh, schools participating in the program since its launch in 2008. And this forms around 10% of schools uh, in Jordan, which is not a very uh, big number. Uh, however, this is just for the Healthy Schools program. If we look at RAS's involvement in schools in general, in, the, in public schools, we would have covered more than 35 to 40% of, of schools uh, around uh, uh, Jordan. And the way our model of work is really relies on uh, building the capacity of teachers and principals to sustain these initiatives within the school so that when we go move on to other schools, these issues and these uh, uh, health education programs continue to happen for um, different generations. We also ask the school to conduct community initiatives and um, uh, we we actually give them guidelines and toolkits on how to do that because we know that they run short of ideas sometimes of, of what to do. Um, in, in terms of the healthy kitchen, we realized that speaking of falling short of ideas, they, they said, okay, if you're gonna accredit us and we need to limit or stop selling chips and sugary drinks and what do we give to the students? They get hungry, what do we provide them with? Um, so we, we thought of creating some form of a linkage with uh, community uh, initiatives, uh, uh, community-based organizations run by women who also need a job opportunity to uh, uh, find, you know, livelihood. So we, what we did was link those kitchens, uh, empower them, empower the women, explain to them what a healthy, nutritious meal would look like for, for kids, and link that kitchen to uh, 10, 20 schools uh, around them so that they would supply those schools with healthy meals and uh, uh, the school would no longer have to rely on, uh, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the other snacks or junk food that they used to offer. I would like to share with you a short video around this particular project. Oh, it's already downloaded, right? Okay. Does it expand? Ormana, 
So that was one of uh, the key programs regarding uh, healthy nutrition, and we could see the uh, the social return on investment. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yes, please. <laughs> Which one is it? This one? Oh, here we go. Oh, Star Wars. There we go. <laughs> full screen mode? Full screen mode. Fantastic, thank you. Although I'm sure they had, uh, C-3PO must have had a healthy message too. They, um, so uh, the return on investment, uh, the social return on investment, Making health uh, or healthy eating uh, a community responsibility, having different people engaged in the process, even uh, the, the producers of cheese, and uh, I'm sure you identify with that very well. I've had some of the <laughs> excellent cheeses <laughs> since I arrived here. But the idea is just making the healthy eating something local, something uh, with maximum community engagement, something that is not too expensive to reach or to have, um, and building on your local resources. So that was the idea, really, that we wanted to convey. At the end of the day, those women who are working are either mothers or aunts or grandmothers of, of children in their community, in their neighborhood. When they understand the value of healthy eating and how to make that meal uh, freshly produced and done every day, I think uh, uh, we're reaching and we're expanding the message from the school to the larger communities. In 2016, I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Amir on, uh, uh, you know, considering he's very much active and the program's been uh, uh, very uh, supportive of Jordan in, in uh, providing um, uh, services and better health access to refugees and to the celiac disease issue in particular. And we, we looked at uh, two, two streams of collaboration. One uh, was related to the Healthy Schools program, uh, which is the basic program we have and the most important program we have at, uh, at RAS. And looking at, when we were discussing uh, Dr. Amir was saying, you know, these issues are not Jordan-specific. These are things that even uh, kids in, in, uh, in the States uh, suffer from. Uh, mothers uh, also are, you know, lacking awareness in these issues. Uh, I think we would, I, I would like to see the children in the community around, in New Hampshire, 
really look at the experience of, uh, um, you know, the, the children in, in Jordan and the, uh, the girls in Jordan, because we had girls and boys schools. We decided to start with the girls first. So, um, but uh, really, uh, uh, from the work that Chad is doing, and I think uh, one of the schools that uh, they were engaged with is Lyme School, uh, Lyme Middle School, uh, and, and we thought, you know, it's, it's really nice to connect uh, these two worlds uh, under an umbrella of, of health uh, dialogue. Um, and so the, the program started, and um, uh, Kate uh, will be speaking in, in depth about the experience that we've had with, uh, with the schools and uh, what they've done and what they've discussed and the results of that. But I will just share with you two, th two quotes from the students in, in Lyme and the students in Jordan. And um, the, the, the amount of energy, I believe, uh, that I've had... The, you know, the honor of feeling firsthand from yesterday's visit to Lyme School. Uh, we, were, we were received with tons of, of questions. Um, the students went, you know, gave me very <laughs> hardcore questions, actually. <laughs> we went from healthy eating and breakfast to gays and lesbians' rights in Jordan to <laughs> the law against uh, uh, the, the regulations against guns to all sorts of of issues that were difficult to go over, but I had promised them, I had promised them to take all the questions back with me uh, to the girls in Jordan and have them answer them um, uh, once I return. So we're looking forward to that. And um, on the healthy kitchen uh, side, uh, I think uh, there was a great added value of bringing to our attention celiac disease and how many students may have, you, you've seen that there are pastries and there is certainly meals that, are, that have gluten and wheat and uh, uh, with our collaboration with Chad, uh, we were able to support uh, and train the women to provide gluten-free meals to the students who needed it. Because in Jordan, unfortunately, we don't have access to gluten-free meals, let alone in poorer communities where there is no awareness altogether around this issue. And um, uh, we've started uh, training the women on how to prepare gluten-free meals and supply, you know, have a different line of production uh, specifically for those children. And uh, I'm sure it uh, did them a huge uh, favor in this uh, regard. So in terms of next steps and where do we see this program and collaboration uh, happening, we are looking forward to continue working with the Lyme School uh, 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 students, engaging maybe uh, more boys, <laughs> and uh, also seeing this uh, replicate on other schools uh, that are collaborating with Chad uh, in, in um, New Hampshire, or maybe it could expand to other uh, uh, states. And I will stop here and I think, uh, thank you again so very much for your attention and for having me come and uh, share this uh, beautiful experience. Before we move on to my, our next speaker, I would like to uh, give a small appreciation, uh, uh, token of appreciation from, from Jordan, from RAS, 
to Dr. Amir for his uh, efforts. Would you like to come? <laughs> Students. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm honored. Um, we have time for two more questions. Two questions from Hanin. If you want to stay up front while I get um, Dr. Wahid Hussami's uh, talk set up. Yes, please. So do you have plans to expand out from the 600 schools that you're affecting now? Because it seems like this is pretty successful. Um, and it sounds like you're maybe 30, 40 percent of the schools. Yes, we do. Uh, we are working now on uh, um, trying to institutionalize this program within the Ministry of Education so that um, it's now a voluntary program, but we're trying to create the demand from uh, other schools to enroll by having uh, the uh, performance evaluation of the principals, of the teachers, revolve around how much of this criteria they've been able to achieve. So we're trying, uh, only last year we've had uh, 130 schools. This year we've had 135 schools, only the new joiners of the program. So the schools started to feel jealous from one another in a way, which is healthy. And um, also we have an issue with boys' schools. So maybe 95% of the schools we have are girls' schools. Uh, I'm not saying we're better achievers in general, but, <laughs> but uh, we do have uh, a pilot of 40 boys' schools. You know, we forced the different governorates to nominate boys' schools this year, and we're going to have uh, a complementary program for them to be able to enroll in, in future years. So we have challenges, but the, the plans to expand are there, certainly. Any other questions? Yes, please. How many students are typically in one of the schools? Um, so in uh, a normal school, let's say from KG to 12, that would be around um, 1,500. Uh, the classroom size would vary from uh, 30 to 45. So the classrooms are quite packed. The capacity is, uh, and you know, that's why a lot of the schools had to change to double shift. Um, yeah, but we have an issue with the, the number numbers of students per teachers and per classrooms, and also that affects the health services being provided. Yes, please. Thanks for your talk. Um, you, you have a lot of uh, immigrants from Syria. Are they mainstreamed at these schools? How does that work? Yes. So each uh, child has the right to access education and uh, uninterrupted education. Uh, and uh, Jordan has opened uh, uh, the public schooling system for, to absorb any child uh, regardless of their nationality, background, or financial ability. So yes, they are uh, uh, out of the, the 700,000 Syrian refugees who are registered with UNHCR, 80% of those live in host communities. They don't live inside refugee camps. The refugee camps, education, and health services are provided by UNHCR or international organizations and NGOs, but the majority are in the community. So you would not be even able to tell 
if this is a Syrian or Jordanian, except if you are an Arabic dialect expert. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Hanian. Thank you. I appreciate it. We can, I think, take more questions. We are going to have all the panel up here the last um, 20 minutes or Thank half you. an hour. And so any questions you have, we'd be happy to answer at the end. Uh, we want to keep on moving. Um, we're very lucky to have Dr. Wael Al-Husami joining us today. He is the Medical Director for International Health at um, the Leahy uh, Clinic. He's um, a Senior Executive Health Physician. He's an Interventional Cardiologist um, and an Interventional Cardiologist. He's an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Tufts and a faculty member of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Disaster Medicine Fellowship Program at Harvard Medical School. Um, he's Board Certified Internal Medicine, Cardiovascular Medicine, and Interventional Cardiology. He has a Bachelor's of Medicine and Surgery from the University of Jordan. He completed his residency in internal medicine through Cornell uh, Medical College and completed fellowships in cardiovascular diseases, interventional cardiology at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center. And so that's always interesting what I say about the links that we have. We had Hanat, the med student who, was, who I met in Jordan, who's actually at UVM, and then Dr. Hosami, who I met in Jordan, is down at Leahy, 70 miles south. So, such a strange, serendipitous world we live in. Um, he has uh, more than 20 years of experience in the medical field as a physician, executive, and a teacher. He has, um, he's on the board of trustees, I believe, at Al Khaldi Hospital, one of the prominent hospitals in Jordan, and serves as a senior medical quality expert in the customer protection unit for the Dubai Health Authority and the governing body and regular of the Dubai Healthcare City. He also established a unique clinical nursing program at Leahy Hospital Medical Center in partnership with multiple universities across Massachusetts and the Middle East. Um, he's also a member of the SAMS, the Syrian American Medical Society um, Cardiology Committee, um, which we're going to hear about today. And so the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much uh, for this kind of uh, invitation. It's a small world also uh, that uh, Joanne Conroy was my boss, and uh, uh, so Dartmouth has stole her from Leahy, and she is one of the most wonderful uh, leaders that I ever met, and I worked with her very, very closely. So you're uh, very fortunate to have her as a CEO here at uh, the hospital. Uh, I have nothing to disclose, and it's my daughter. <laughs> Uh, except I want to say one thing. Any political uh, comments here, it represents my point of view. It doesn't represent SAMS, doesn't represent any organization that I work for. And uh, when I give talks, I want to say one thing. When you work on any global outreach program on the front, run, uh, on the front line uh, problems, you have to understand politics. You have to understand all players. Otherwise, you get trapped uh, between people. Uh, even if you're providing uh, non-political medicine, but you have to understand the players because, uh, I mean, you know how, how things go, and uh, the players, uh, they could use the healthcare providers as either shield or for stories. story. So, uh, so I want you just to have some... Um, 
I'm going to go over some background about Syria, then talk about the population quickly. I'm Jordanian, but uh, uh, we're providing uh, these uh, services because we're human, not because of just uh, our geography. And uh, we are, our message here, just everyone has been providing this service because we feel with our uh, human being wherever they live. Then we'll talk about SAMS and then about all medical missions. If you look at the map here where Syria uh, uh, is, and you see uh, around Syria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, uh, all countries there got affected or they have been also one of the players on the, on the ground. And I would say probably 50 countries at least, if not more, uh, they have some stake uh, in Syria and there are a massive uh, wars there. Health, uh, it is a proxy war between countries. It's not just Syrian fighting each other, countries fighting each other. Uh, population Syria, 18 million used to be, uh, and there were about 12 million Syrian either displaced or are refugees outside the countries. Uh, ethnicities, uh, uh, most of them Arabic, uh, Arab, and uh, they have uh, multiple other uh, minorities there. Uh, the spoken language, the Arabic language, most of them uh, Muslim, but it's a very diverse country. Uh, they have uh, Sunni and Shia, they live together for 100 years up to recently. Uh, Christian, uh, they're there, uh, Jew, and uh, Dorji, and other, some other minorities. Uh, most of the population, uh, they're young, as uh, similar to the Jordanian, it's 35 uh, years and younger, almost 70 to 80 percent of the population, 50 to 50 percent uh, male to female ratio. And uh, I have to say Syria is the first evidence of modern humans appears 100,000 years ago. It is one of the oldest country in the world. And got occupied because of uh, their locations and resources by multiple uh, uh, occupations uh, around the history from Greek, Romans, the empire, then Islamic empires, then Mongolians, then ended with Ottomans. And after that, uh, in 1920 uh, until 1946, Syria became under French mandate. So uh, French language is there, does exist in Syria. And after that, uh, Syria became independent up to almost 2015, multiple presidents uh, 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 governed the Syria. In 1971, Assad's the first uh, uh, he took over, and since then, uh, his son uh, uh, Bashar came after that. And that's current Syria, uh, governed by uh, this guy. <laughs> he is controlling Syria completely, and he's controlling, and he's the major player there. And that's what left after seven, eight years in Syria. You look at the uh, Syria, Syria got destroyed completely. And uh, with that, uh, someone has to help the Syrian. And I would say the United Nations has been doing some job, but has been getting weaker and weaker by their operations financially, politically, and they pushed out on some certain areas. So they didn't operate inside Syria, So, uh, uh, in, uh, like other countries. They have some operations. For that, SAMS has to step up and uh, uh, move and do some more work. I want just to uh, run some video. I have technical uh, difficulty. Uh, 
It's all because Joanne put a lot of security in our computer, <laughs> and I was not able to um, uh, transfer my information to the other computer. Let's play that. So this video will give you an idea about the missions that we have been doing. Then we'll go over SAMS and what we uh, are doing in Jordan and other countries. Uh, when they did the Kafna, no other colonial part, 
crying as if you're crying what's going on. You have very normal arms. She said, you know, I'm just beautiful because I'm sure So I think what messages is people uh, we have to work together. But also, you know, <coughs> it was the uh, to resolve some of the misunderstandings. I'll stop here. Thank you. So, uh, just this is part of uh, what uh, Sam is doing, but I will go over some details as uh, uh, quick as possible just to uh, give you more uh, information about uh, SAMS. Uh, SAMS uh, is a Syrian American Medical Society. Just go back here, the crisis, as I mentioned, uh, left uh, uh, six million Syrian uh, uh, leaving their countries in Jordan. This is only the registered uh, uh, people, and uh, some other people they didn't register, they're afraid to get their name with the UN. So the number, as Hanin mentions, about 1.4 million uh, Syrian. And uh, in Turkey, it's uh, the largest uh, hosted country. Uh, it's hosting about 2 million and a half, actually more than this number. And Lebanon, about 1.2 million. Iraq, Egypt. Europe is around uh, uh, 300,000. In U.S., about 50,000. So uh, that's what all uh, Trump whining about so, all the time. Uh, that's the crisis. The Syrian refugees crisis is the worst refugee crisis since World War II. And this is one famous uh, uh, when they attacked Aleppo, uh, 2016. Uh, so what SAMS, SAMS is Syrian American Medical Society, uh, was a small NGO, uh, uh, was uh, started in 1998 and was just taking care of Syrian physician educations. And it's a non-profit organization, non-political and non-religious. And in 2001, Sam's uh, goal and uh, mission has changed to uh, help people and uh, work on the health care. Uh, therefore, uh, if you look at the statistics, uh, SAMS has provided uh, 3.5 million health uh, uh, services to Syrian uh, inside Syria and outside Syria. But most of the services were provided inside Syria, about 89%. So we have team in southern part of Syria. Unfortunately, we have to take a hard decision last month and uh, to stop our operations because uh, the Russian and uh, government took over and kicked everyone from that area, and they're not replacing uh, the health care facility. They attacked all the health care facilities, uh, but still the operation in the northern part of Syria is ongoing. We have 2,000 employees working there. Um, we do uh, missions uh, to the neighborhood countries. I'll uh, show you some. But what services in general we provide um, primarily is primary care, pediatrics, and the second most common is trauma. Uh, we have ICU, and uh, that ICU uh, was hooked with uh, uh, basic telemedicine from Cleveland Clinic, and basically we use uh, WhatsApp, FaceTime. Uh, there is no HIPAA on this. It's war zone, so we're trying to manage uh, on, on the war zone uh, on this way. We have uh, rehabilitation centers and uh, also dental clinics, eye clinics, and multiple other projects which I'm going to mention about. 
2016, the UN has asked SAMS to provide a polio vaccine to southern part of Syria. So we have provided almost quarter million kids with the vaccine uh, from, uh, uh, like all done by SAMS operation. And uh, we started some uh, operations uh, due to politics, not due to the lack of fund. Uh, suddenly, all countries uh, left the Syrian refugees without any dialysis. The patient who need dialysis and uh, who has kidney transplant need medication. So we took that project. It was a very costly project, but we have to help those patients. Otherwise, you know, in a week, it's a death sentence to every single patient. Uh, but you know, sometimes you need. To, if you have, if you if you want to, if you have the will, there is a way always, and we we have done it, and uh, it worked out. Uh, SAMS also has uh, that's the dialysis. We have provided almost 11,000 dialysis sessions uh, in 2017 for those patients. Used to be covered by the UN. UN give it to the Qatari, Qatari suddenly they stopped, then give it to Saudi, Saudi they stopped, and suddenly abrupt stopped, everyone. It's not about money, it's all about something we don't know, it's politics. And, uh, also, SAMS has started a, a Zatari uh, clinic, multidisciplinary uh, clinic. Amr was there also uh, last year in that clinic. It's, uh, uh, we have uh, pediatricians, uh, orthopedic uh, primary care, of course, uh, gynecologist, uh, psychologist, neurosurgeon. They do just simple uh, procedures there. Uh, we have X-ray, uh, simple lab. It's not really sophisticated because it's in the on the camp, and that's the camp. It's the largest camp in the world currently, uh, with 80,000. As Hanin mentioned, most of the Syrians they live, they are integrated uh, with the community. Uh, they live uh, with the Jordanian. It's difficult to know who's the Syrian, who's the Jordanian, especially the southern part of Syria. They have the same accent like the northern part of Jordan. So when you talk to them. There is no way to know unless you ask specifically where you're from. So that's a Zatari camp uh, from inside the clinics that we have opened. Uh, it's compared to other uh, clinics, it's, it's, I think it's fair, it's good. We have also dental clinic, which is unique there, and we have 110 employees working inside the camp. And that was uh, opened in 2011. Uh, Princess uh, Mona, King Abdullah's mother, uh, father, uh, mother uh, was there, and uh, she attended the opening ceremony, and the Minister of Health, that's the SAMS team. Uh, some of our uh, uh, missions, that, just to show you the pictures, how the camp looks inside, uh, uh, from the inside. And why there is a camp and there, there is no camp. So people who went to the camps, they came without any documentations. Those cross borders. So some camps you have to screen them. And Zatari camp is screened already. So they have the ability actually to leave the camp two days a week not like the other camps, which is a little bit more security uh, under security clearance. But uh, uh, Zatari camp is a little bit uh, more open. Uh, also, SAMS has opened a mental uh, health clinic in Airbed, which is the northern part of uh, Jordan. And uh, we're dealing with uh, uh, anxiety, depression, and uh, any psych disease uh, that we uh, see. Uh, in addition, we have a global outreach program. and. Uh, uh, Sam's uh, helped in Houston, in Bangladesh, on other uh, places where uh, wherever we can do, we just have the team who can chip in. And I want you to look at the missions that we do. We do four missions a year to Jordan, uh, Lebanon eight missions, and Turkey 11 missions. We started the missions to um, 
Egypt is going to be the third mission. Uh, Jordan is more popular. It's the largest mission and more organized. Uh, uh, the mission that we went to, uh, me and Amr, uh, 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 about 100 people, they came from all over the world, but primarily from the U.S. to help on that mission. And we have treated 5,000 patients on one mission. Um, how we get our fund, 50% comes from individual donors and the other 50 is from government and NGOs uh, around the world. Uh, and to treat one Syrian through SAMS, uh, the average cost is about $9 only. Part of this because all of us, we work for free. And even if you travel, you pay your tickets, your lodging, you pay everything. So basically, we're trying to save every penny to, to just give it directly to the patient direct care. So our fund, 92% goes directly to the patient's care, 5% to the fundraising, and 3% overhead for the employee for the office. And uh, there are one, one office we have in D.C., one in Jordan, and one in Turkey. Uh, fund most of the time come from Michigan, Illinois, then California, and Massachusetts also has good, uh, uh, has been supporting SAMS very well also. Uh, SAMS also uh, last year uh, uh, helped when uh, the chemical attacks uh, uh, happened to another part of Syria, and we have provided the antidote to the uh, facilities there to help uh, people. Uh, we have advocacy teams working with the governments, uh, with the European and the U.S. in addition to the local governments. Uh, Senator McCain uh, was very supportive uh, uh, to SAMS uh, uh, and very articulating about that, that uh, the, on the right side, uh, 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 the left side of this, left side, yes, the Prime Minister of Jordan, and on the right side, the Pope uh, in Roma. Uh, SAMS has appeared 650 times featured on, on the media last year, and uh, our facilities had been attacked multiple times, 172 attacks, uh, that was in 2016, and 14 employees were killed, and this is one of our colleague cardiologists who was killed by uh, targeted missiles. Uh, uh, and for some reason, they attacked the facilities in, inside Syria, and that has been a trend in Iraq the same. Uh, whenever, wherever there is a war zone, they attack the facility. And I think they want the people to suffer. They want the people to feel they suffer. They don't want people, uh, and that's the war. We don't understand it. And with that, Sam's moved to underground facilities and also cave facilities. Actually, this is uh, an ICU on the cave, and that's one of our ICU providing care just to protect patients uh, when you treat them. Uh, with that, uh, despite all the suffer, uh, still uh, life uh, uh, goes on, and uh, we have delivered uh, 43,000 uh, 43, baby in 2017. 2015, actually 100,000 baby in SAMS facilities. Uh, so Jordan missions, this is just to give you just a quick idea about Jordan missions. People, uh, they sign up uh, to the missions, and basically uh, we get any healthcare providers, even non-physician, um, who want to help on logistics, uh, distributing medications. I can give you an example that one hairstylist came uh, with us, and she wanted to do something. And, uh, I told her, you know, just find your way out. Because, you know, I was busy. I don't know what to do. And she went to a Zatari camp with us, and uh, she got all the girls, and she started showing them how to do the hair or hairstylists, how to start business on that. 
It was fun. It was fun. You can do anything, actually, if you uh, decide to go. Uh, quick about Jordan. Uh, Hanin mentioned 10,000 and how that number, 10 million, how that number came. And if you look at the Jordanian, uh, they're 7.5 million. And uh, Jordan spent good amount of money on, uh, on health care. The total budget for the whole country is $12.5 billion. Leahy and the BI, they're merging, as you know. And the budget will be $6 billion. So two hospitals budget half of Jordan budget. Jordan country, not just the healthcare, the whole country. From defense to education to health to everything. And that... Uh, Officially, uh, a third of Jordanians live below the poverty line. You find rich people all over the world. And if you go to Amman, you think Jordan is one of the richest countries. But in reality, uh, there are a lot of poor people. And the number that came to 10 million, Jordan has taken in more than 2.7 million people, was named as the top refugee hosting country in the world. So we have Syrian prior to that. Iraqi, prior to that, Palestinian. We have also people from Yemen, Sudan. Wherever there is conflict, they feel safe. They come to Jordan, and Jordan is very welcoming. And they integrate into their society. So people who was whining about refugees, we have one in four refugees in Jordan, in a poor country. And we're still surviving, and we're smiling. So... <laughs> uh, so, uh, more trend on refugees in general health. Uh, we see more non-communicable disease. People, they seek for hypertension, coronary artery disease, diabetes, respiratory, and why cardiovascular disease is very important. There was a lot of fights inside the society. Cardiovascular is expensive medicine. We're not going to start missions on cardiovascular disease. But this is an official statistics from uh, the WHO. Cardiovascular disease still number one killer in the world. And among refugees, same or more, we're, we're conducting a study. Actually, they have more coronary artery disease than uh, average people. And uh, trying to skip uh, some slides, this patient uh, from a Zatari camp, he's in his 60s. And if you look at, uh, I'll try to just show you here. If you look at this side, I want you to see left main artery, CERC, LED. If you look at this hazy area, it's blocked artery. And has, it's called chronic totally crudit. Had three procedures, failed, he came to me, and I, to be honest, I was so nervous. He's from the camp. We're doing this in a hospital without surgical backup. How can I open this artery? I told him I cannot. After I went, he said, please try. I tried a little bit. I said, I cannot. Then he begged me more because he has chest pain every day. He cannot walk around. Finally, you know, uh, something happened. The wire went through with his prayer, and we opened the artery. So look at this artery. That's the same artery here. So that's stented area, and he's doing well. We have a cardiologist who follow those patients on the, in the camp. Another lady, she's a 40, 40-year-old. And again, I want to show you the haziness on that artery. See haziness there? So came with heart attack for this. It's late. I'm sure you understand here the door to balloon. You rush to open the artery within 90 minutes. 
Five days later came the uh, cardiogenic truck. They brought her in. I opened the RP for her. She's doing well. Actually, I manage her. That's almost worth two years ago. I manage her on WhatsApp on a weekly basis. I adjust her medications. She check lab. I send her. She doesn't have money. She was the only person working for the family. She has four daughters, and her husband has stroke. And up to now, she's disabled and got support by Sam's just to get her to go to work. And the only question always she asked me after her health care, when I can go back to work. So it's tough. You know, it's tough for those people. And uh, just to show you the cardiac missions, uh, we have multiple people from different states. Uh, more, we, we take primarily cardiologists from the United States with uh, 8 to 10 years' experience. And this, uh, these are the procedures. If you look at uh, the number of procedures that have been provided so far, 661 patients, half of them received an interventional cardiology. And we have performed cabbage, which is bypass surgery to 30 patients, and another open-heart surgery for patients uh, need valve replacement, either aortic valve replacement or mitral valve replacement. The cost that we have, actual cost that we paid in Jordan, 700000 If those patients were to pay in Jordan on the local market cost, it's, uh, they have to pay $3.5 million. There is no way in the earth they have it. I mean, their salary is about $200 a month. And just to give you more imaginations about it, if they were to have it in Massachusetts, not in New Hampshire, I don't know about New Hampshire cost, uh, the cost is eight, $18 million for those patients. So that just to show you the impact, besides just the financial impact, because I work on some financial work at Leahy. So it's not just... Uh, what you do for those patients, there is no other way. I mean, that's the only way that we have to do it. And Sam is the only organization around the world doing an interventional cardiology procedures for refugees. None of the other organizations, they do that. They don't want to do it because it's, they thought it's expensive. But we go for free in our own vacations. And I want to give you one more powerful uh, about the human being, Metronic. I have no conflict. I don't use even their stamps so often, unless the hospital forced me. But 70 employees, 70 employee works at, uh, at the Metronic, and they have decided to work one extra day to manufacture stents and give it to us. So they give us 250 stents uh, annually. So that's the support. And the power is not just the willing of the institution. The people inside the institution, they have decided to do that. And they work for us one day a year to give us stems. Uh, medications, we give it, we get it just also from uh, uh, donors. This is a, a patient from a Zatri camp, just looking at his himself. Uh, this patient, just a quick, I'm all about to finish up, uh, came with chest pain, went to a... a the physician, our physician, they told me, you know, the list is over, we cannot add you on. Start begging people, no one is listening. And he came in, walking to the hospital, where is it, Hussami? I want to talk to you. He said, what's going on? He said, I have chest pain. I kept him last patient on the mission. It was Friday, it was, uh, there is Thursday. Thursday, around 6 p.m. We have closing ceremony, I did the cat, I told him, you know, you came all the way, and 
just like he has $10 to pay the cab. That's it. He has no money. I cast him. I want you to look at the left main artery. Unfortunately, this doesn't work, right? Uh, yes. Look, this is the left main. It's 99% blocked artery. It is just he's waiting to die. I was like shocked. And I never regretted that adding any patients because one patient like this cannot wait for an mission. We will not find him. And then he had the surgery. We have a, an outstanding surgeon who comes from Florida, and he is doing extremely well. That was uh, one year ago, and now we're still uh, doing well. Another patient from Azatari camp has a myxoma, a tumor inside his heart. Cannot walk for 10 feet without shortness breath because occluding his heart. How did I get this patient? What's up? I got a WhatsApp echo. Echo on the WhatsApp, looking at the WhatsApp. Oh my God, what's this? This is a mess. Surgeon next to me, hey, I have this patient on the WhatsApp. Uh, can we get him? Yeah, get him over. Get him over, had his surgery done, and he did very well. So uh, with that, I encourage everyone to apply to Sam's missions. We have multiple missions. We are calling for uh, uh, help uh, to Lebanon. Uh, our missions to Jordan is going to be next uh, month. I'm going there, but it's closed. But we have missions in January, April, July, and November, and we take any healthcare providers. Primarily, we need pediatricians because really most of our patients, by statistics, 60% that we see, they're pediatric. Patience. Thank you. Thank you. We can take probably um, one or two questions while we set up our next speaker. And then we have two more 10 minute presentations. What's the status of medical education right now in Syria? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's not great on, on uh, the, the rebel held area, and uh, we started uh, uh, SAMS and Aleppo uh, University has uh, some relation, and we have group who's uh, trying to help them. So uh, it's not the best education, and uh, we have some fund to support them on certain centers. Hopkins, John Hopkins, has been very helpful to take some Syrians uh, through us, and uh, also we're trying to provide uh, help in Jordan, so Jordan University took some and some other private uh, hospital. We're trying to build up the human capacity for the future so they can uh, treat uh, their own people because this is not going to last forever. I mean, we are trying to be the bridge at some point. But that's a good question, yeah. And he asked my question. I was asked, I, the work that you were doing is fantastic. And I was wondering how sustainable this is and how you are helping to rebuild the infrastructure that's been destroyed in Syria. Yeah, absolutely. We're trying to educate as many as people uh, that we can. It is, uh, it's not easy to find also spot for education, but uh, I think Jordan and Turkey, uh, the, both countries, they're taking good number of students. And in general, Jordan, uh, very supportive in terms of education. As Hanin mentioned, we're uh, very open to, uh, and it's not very expensive to educate people. It's a lot of competition, so you need to get the right people too to, uh, to get them there in education. My question is more in alignment of your facilities. You're bouncing back and forth from the same facilities, but in between the time that you're utilizing them, are they open to other organizations or to the countries themselves and the providers that are embedded in the countries to utilize too? Uh, and how do you align your organization with, within the country's own 
Absolutely. So we work with all NGOs there. We have regular meetings and we have staff on, on the ground. We have physicians there. In addition, uh, we get referral from the local community physicians and even we get referral from uh, the Minister of Health. Uh, it's like the overflow. Now, I have to say our patients that we treat, they are not all refugees. In cardiology, we were able to recruit 10% non-Syrian. Uh, so we have people from Iraq, Bangladesh person, some people from Gaza, we don't discriminate, we don't even ask. Uh, in the southern part of Jordan, we treat more Jordanian than Syria because of the geography. So we're open and we cooperate with the Jordanian government with all branches, with the Minister of uh, uh, Health, with the Minister of Social Affairs, just to, uh, beside, we have the regular meeting with the UN and uh, with the French embassy, with the US embassies, with all uh, all, we're very open, very much with any NGO that need to work with us. So. Did I answer your question? Okay. Any other question? There's uh, such good work you're doing for so many people, and there's so much need. I don't know how much triage you actually are able to help. Our triage, right? Uh, so. What we do in general, we, we train some uh, social worker. We don't have real full-time. We have nurses working on the healthcare facility to help. But the social worker that we have, uh, we have three of them, they get all the information, they triage, as, we train them, they triage as many patients as they can, then they send it to us, then we decide, we have second look by email, and uh, then we decide which patient need procedure, then. Again, we meet with the patients before we do the procedures to make sure it's appropriate. So we do multiple level of uh, triaging, especially when you come for snapshot uh, doing surgeries, you have to be so careful. In addition, we collaborate with the local physicians. Uh, so after we leave those patients, they stay under their services. So in cardiology, I have colleagues. In uh, cardiothoracic surgery, we have group of physicians, Jordanian, who are uh, backup, uh, working as a backup for us. And if patients need help, they can go there and seek medical advice for free. They have donated their time to do that, too. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you. We have two more. Kate Sepulveda is our next speaker. She's one of the founders of Welcoming All Nationalities Network, one in 2011 in the Upper Valley with fiscal construct from WISE. She's the director and attorney for Juan. In 2013, she began providing immigration and legal services to low-income and indigent immigrants um, in the Upper Valley and throughout New Hampshire and Vermont. Before moving to the Upper Valley in 2006, she worked as an asylum attorney for National Institute in Boston and was a staff attorney for the Midwest Immigrant Human Rights Center in Chicago. We're having a little bit of a problem with the recording. So where are you headed to now? Hey Mike, we still got problems with this? So this is being live streamed. You're all set? You're good to go, folks. Sorry. Do you want this or do you need the podium? No, I'll just stay here. Thank you. Thanks so much. 
for um, giving me the opportunity to share um, about this really exciting project um, that's been happening in my little town of Lyme, New Hampshire. Um, can everybody hear me? I'm not sure if this is on. Is this on? Okay. Um, so um, just a quick aside, sort of um, very uh, much serendipity in play here as well. I met Amr um, at a conference, and then my son was having sort of chronic tummy issues, and we saw Amr, <laughs> and, you know, and sitting there in the exam room, um, we started talking about um, our mutual interest in working with refugees, and um, he said, I have this great project that wants to connect with um, school children in the Upper Valley. And I said, well, the Lyme School is a really a great place to do projects like this because the administration and um, faculty are open to um, new things. So um, we have had a really great experience. Um, these are the two schools involved with this project, which we've now named CHAT children's health awareness through telecommunication. <clears throat> um, there's lots of partners that have made this possible, and I just wanted to do a quick lowdown. You've heard about the Jordan, Jordanian Royal Health Awareness Society um, through Hanin. Um, this is the Healthy Schools Program, so it's a, providing certification for the schools in Jordan um, that are participating in this. So there's um, sort of a, a motivation there for the Jordanian schools. It's a little bit different than the motivation um, at the Lyme School, um, but we found that that doesn't really matter. <laughs> We're all happy. Um, the Calda um, Secondary School for Girls is the school that we're partnering with. Um, CHAD and the child, Global Child Health Program and Dartmouth-Hitchcock are supporting it through um, funding and, and other sort of just support, making it happen. Um, WISE is now um, the program that the, the organization that um, uh, WAN, the Welcoming All Nationalities Network of the Upper Valley, which I started, um, is a program of WISE. Um, and so WISE has um, been involved with making this continue, continuation possible. The Lyme Foundation um, provided uh, support for it in its first year, and the Lyme School, obviously, is supporting in lots of ways. Um, so the goals, as I, as I mentioned, um, we, we quickly realized that our, our goals in um, in seeing this happen, we're a little bit different on um, both sides of the project. But, um, you know, the health awareness um, aspect of it is, is something that the Lyme School, um, I think, is benefiting from, but it wasn't necessarily our primary goal to add to the health awareness of education for our students. Um, our students get a lot of um, education um, it, through the regular curriculum, but it was really interesting for us to consider these health topics in a, from a different perspective, to step back and say, okay, so if you're going to talk about nutrition with somebody from a different country who's had a different approach, you know, what are the things that you might think about? Um, what are the things that you want to share? Um, and so it gave us, it gave us the ability to sort of step back and see these topics through a different lens um, with the kids. 
Um, and, you know, I would say that the cultural aspect of it is, is the key motivator for the Lyme faculty and um, the Lyme students. They're really excited to, to meet um, kids from uh, another part of the world that they really don't have the opportunity to meet in person. Lyme does not have a big um, international population um, uh, different than some of the other schools in the Upper Valley. Um, Lebanon and Hanover, for example, probably have a, have a larger population of kids that are um, new immigrants. <clears throat> and, um, you know, from the beginning, we've wanted to create a process that could be replicated um, in, in both the Upper Valley and um, in Jordan. So we're working on taking what we've learned, the teachers are helping um, build sort of a curricular model. Um, so our, our approach was, let's just set, set some um, objectives for the first year. Um, we um, aimed for four sessions with the children interacting. We've made it to three. Um, We've learned quickly that the school years have different schedules. There's exams, there's holidays, there's daylight savings time. All of those things sort of um, wrapped into making it hard to get the fourth one in. Um, each session was based around a health topic. Um, and we had activities both in Amman and in Lyme sort of uh, before the session to help the kids understand sort of what we're going to be talking about and help them prepare some questions. Um, because we didn't want to gear up to this interaction and have the kids, you know, um, like deer in headlights. So, um, the, and as I said, we're scaling up um, to, to expand the program. So, we did some brainstorming with um, teachers in um, Amman as well as the teachers in Lyme to think about what topics might we, might we want to address. Um, healthy nutrition, as Hanin said, it's um, really important for the students in Amman to talk about this. Um, the kids in Lyme have heard a lot about healthy nutrition, um, but they were super excited to talk about what foods they love, and to learn about the foods that um, the kids in Amman love. And um, mental health was something that came up for us. As you know, it's, you know, uh, school children in the U.S. are really um, dealing with anxiety and depression issues probably in a different way than, and more aware of it. Um, and so that was something that came up for our faculty. Exposure to violence, um, as something, you know, it looks different in the U.S. than it is, does in Jordan. Um, acknowledging that our kids are really thinking about gun violence. Um, you know, when Hanin was at the Lyme School yesterday, one of the kids asked, what's gun violence like at, in Jordan? Um, they want to talk about it and, and figure out what they can do about it. Um, and thinking about the fact that some of the kids who are participating in the program in Jordan are refugees who have experienced violence in a different way. Uh, we, we, we didn't get directly to how to address that, and I think it's something that we need to keep working on. Um, 
smoking, as Hanin said, smoking um, is a much different picture um, in Amman for the children. I think many of them express that their parents smoke and that they experience smoke um, in a secondhand smoke um, very regularly. The kids in Lyme don't. Um, the kids in, in our group, none of their parents smoke. We talked about the fact that um, smoking in public is generally not allowed. Um, but it was very interesting for the kids in Lyme <laughs> to learn about the fact that it's not like this everywhere. Um, and they, they learned about what a hookah is and, you know, the dangers of, um, you know, smoking in a different way that can really increase the um, health risks. Um, there were moments where where the teachers and I were, you know, looking at each other like, I hope we're not teaching them something that we, <laughs> that we shouldn't be. Um, hygienic environment, again, this is, you know, um, something that the Healthy Schools program in, in Jordan is really thinking about. Um, we, didn't, we didn't get very far in thinking about how that would translate. Um, physical activity, the kids definitely talked about what they like to do after school. Do they do sports? Um, you know, what are they doing with their time? And I'm going to show you a little clip in a minute about them talking about what they like to do with their free time. Um, safe schools and safe behavior. Again, a lot of this is sort of intermixed, and we touched upon a lot of these topics. <clears throat> so we ended up with healthy nutrition and smoking as um, two of our, our key topics. And then we gave the third, the third session was the student's choice. And they chose social media. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, which we found out was really a fantastic way for them to connect um, because they weren't connecting via social media, but they were able to talk about how important it is to them. Um, because, of course, emojis are a universal language. <laughs> um, so we talked about healthy nutrition. Um, they shared, you know, what happens at home, who cooks, um, what types of things are cooked, when do you eat a big meal. Um, just talked about the similarities and the differences. What kind of fruits and vegetables do you love? Um, and it was our first session really allowed the girls to, to develop a comfort level um, talking about a topic that, you know, was pretty easy to talk about, whether or not you like blueberries and chocolate. And, um, and we did a pre-teaching session. Um, Amr's wife, Rima, came in and did a session with us on um, uh, typical foods that are eaten um, in the Middle East. and. Um, served our students a meal. It was fantastic. And um, we helped them prep some questions so that they, they were ready. Um, these were photos that were shared from um, Amman. These are students who were doing um, healthy foods uh, sessions there prior to the talk. Um, the kids were all middle school kids, so a lot of these kids are younger than the ones that we talked to, but um, their approach was definitely school-wide. <clears throat> and this, these are photos from our session at the Lyme School. This is Rima, Amar's uh, wife, doing a um, teaching session for us. 
this is the conversation about smoking. Hi, I'm Maria. Hello, my name is Ina. I'm from Georgia, Vermont. Oh. Hello, my name is Joa. I'm from Hello. Good morning to you. Good afternoon, Ahmad. This was a little montage that one of the teachers put together. sample sort of you know the girl from Amman says what what can we do about this what are what do you think are approaches to having people um, not smoke and um, a girl in Lyme says well there's always education <laughs> and another girl in Lyme says um, you know it's pretty it seems to be something that people think are is cool in um, pop culture um, so they are just um, building a relationship um, you know, as they go, but also understanding that each other has, you know, a similar um, uh, experience of this problem, um, which every topic that we talked about, um, it was fun to watch the girls sort of realize the similarities in which they experience um, these issues. Um, so, I'm not sure if I have another slide. Um, sorry, I don't know how to get out of here. You press escape. Escape. I think there was the, There's more. Did I have one more? <coughs> um, so phase two of the project will be um, to ideally expand to three or four more schools um, in both locations. Um, and Amr's working um, on that through CHAD. Um, there are a few schools that are identified as interested. Um, um, obviously, that's going to mean that there's more support for the project um, necessary. And um, building those curricular models to make that expansion um, easier. So that's it. Yep. We have time for one question to Kate before we um, go to our last speaker of the day. Um, are the girls now connected via social media? Do they talk to each other when they're not on these sessions? They're not. Um, there was a reticence uh, to 
encourage that. Um, we sort of we wanted to explore ways in which the girls could communicate directly with each other, and the school in Amman felt more comfortable having the communication come through the school and have it be sort of um, supervised. So we didn't encourage them to be in contact with each other on their own. Um, that said, you know, they could be. They could, they have each other's bios. They could find each other. Um, but we definitely did not encourage that. We didn't want to do anything that seemed like it was outside of sort of the bounds that had been set for the project. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, last but not least, we have Hannah uh, Shahadeh who is going to share um, her student's perspective um, during our last trip to, the, uh, to, to care for Syrian refugees in Jordan. Um, Hannah is a medical student at University of Vermont, and um, I met her last July during our, final, during our last trip, and it turns out that her, house, her, her uncle's house and my parents' house are only about less than two minutes away from each other in <laughs> yeah. Jordan. So again, small coincidences. And she previously was an undergrad at URI before moving up to Burlington. So, it's all yours. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you all for being here. And I'd like to thank Dr. Amir for inviting me to speak here today. Um, I've never done something like this before, so I'm a little excited and a little nervous. Um, so, uh, I'm a second year med student at the University of Vermont. And um, this past summer, I volunteered with SAMS um, in Jordan as a medical interpreter. Uh, so just before I get started, a little bit about myself. So I was born and raised in, jo in Jordan, um, lived there till I was about five years old, and then my family moved to the United Arab Emirates. Um, I was there till I was about maybe 12, and then uh, my oldest sister was ready to start college, so um, my family thought it was the right time to make the move to the uh, United States. And we moved to the smallest state, to Rhode Island, um, because we had family here previously. And I've been there ever since, up until last year when I started medical school. Um, and I think just because of my background, because I experienced healthcare here and back home, um, I've always been interested in medicine and um, more specifically in global health. Um, so I started medical school, and one of the first things I did was apply to the global health program um, at UVM. And I was accepted. I was all set to go to Uganda actually in June. But um, the closer I got to the date, the more nervous I got because it was a six-week trip. It's a six-week-long trip. and I wasn't really sure what my role was going to be, and it was my um, last really long break before I go away, or before I start rotations and everything. So I wanted to spend more time with my family. Um, so I ended up backing out, but at the same time, my oldest sister, who is now a physician in New York City, um, was finishing up her, her first trip with SAMS. And so she told me, why don't you just apply for SAMS? Um, there are shorter durations, and you get to go home and see our family again. Um, so I did that. And I applied, and I got accepted as a medical interpreter, and I was very excited to start. Um, so I, sh I have a lot of pictures. <laughs> um, so basically, a typical day would be us meeting at a hotel in Amman and, um, around 7 a.m., and then buses would depart around 8 a.m., and we'd get to the site that you were scheduled for that day. Um, and for me, my first two days, I was at the Al-Zatari camp, and uh, I was very excited really nervous though because it is the like largest <laughs> refugee camp in the world. I wasn't sure what to expect. And I just remember when our buses arrived there, like there's just a huge group of people waiting for us outside the clinic and 
getting off the bus, we kind of felt like celebrities and everybody like, waiting for us. And <laughs> it was just a special feeling, really. Um, so anyways, uh, we all met up in the clinic, and uh, we each get assigned to it, a physician. And I got assigned to the same doctor the first two days. She was an emergency medicine uh, physician here in California, I believe. Um, she was really just wonderful to work with. Um, this right here is... This was uh, the emergency room <laughs> that we worked at, and I quickly came to realize that it's not really an emergency room. It was more of like a like a one room with maybe like two beds in it. So not my expectations of an emergency room, um, but still, there were, we saw a lot of patients. We really didn't really see emergencies. I would say it was more of like a triage kind of role. Um, but the doctor was wonderful. I mean, we saw so many patients, but she was very thorough. Um, you know, took really detailed histories and. It was just an, like, just an amazing experience um, to be there. And um, I think what I really realized during those first few days, just how important communication is, and I realized that our role as medical interpreters is actually really important. I mean, most of these physicians don't really speak any Arabic, and I felt like um, even for me with a medical background and fluent Arabic, it was still a little hard. Um, I mean, for example, she told me to... Tell a patient he's having a COPD exacerbation. I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't really know how to translate that straight into Arabic. So I would ask a physician to um, kind of explain it in English, and then I would translate that literally in Arabic. Um, so I felt like medical interpreters are actually really important, and I think having them have a medical background was also even more important because even for me it was hard, so I can't even imagine what it was like for the um, non-medical interpreters. Um, so that was my first two days. Um, and I do want to share one more story from that, uh, that day that the same patient, the COPD patient, was actually this big guy, <laughs> this big man that came in, and he was just very like, anx like anxious and just frustrated, and he saw two females, and he was just like so opposed to having us take care of him, but then and he kept ushering for the male nurse to come in and um, to like, be there in the room with them, but somehow we got through to him, and we gave him his first breathing treatment, and it was like a a flip. This guy just changed. He was just so wonderful afterwards. And then the next day he came back and he even brought his whole family and made sure to find us and say, like, thank you so much. And I think that was just a huge compliment to Sam's. Uh, this is a picture of the clinic that they, um, this is the Sam's clinic, but we didn't get to work at it during our trip. We actually worked at another clinic. I'm not sure what happened, why we weren't um, allowed to be in there, but it was still um, a really good experience. And these are two pictures of the waiting rooms that day. Uh, my third day was in the Urban Clinic site. Um, I worked with an ophthalmologist, and it was really a fun day for me. It was very hands-on. She was having me do um, not just histories and translating for her, but really like a lot of the examinations, which was really fun. And I put up a picture of this little girl right here because I wanted to share her story. Um, so throughout the day, she, this girl was just kept coming in and out of the room and giving us hugs and kisses. It was just very, very sweet. And then eventually I asked her, like, who are you? Like, where are your parents? Where is your family? And she just replied, <laughs> like, it was just very, very heartbreaking what she said. She just said, oh, um, my dad passed away a long time ago, and my mom left us, so I'm here with my grandma. <laughs> and I just didn't know how to react. You know, I was just very tearful, and the doc I translated to the doctor, and she also was very tearful. And that's just an example of some of the stories that we heard there. It was just very heartbreaking. And this little girl was just talking in a way that just seemed much older than her. She was just very mature sounding. It was just really just something really touching to um, hear. And um, the last clinic site that I was at was in Al-Salt. 
And this was a different population of patients, I believe. It was mostly um, Jordanian people that we saw, um, which was interesting. Um, this clinic was different. I wouldn't really say it was a clinic. It was um, more of like a house, kind of separated in two rooms. And it was two doctors. I was actually with Dr. Ahmed that day. Um, and I was helping triage and translate at the same time. Um, what I really wanted to point out from that day is that I was very proud to be part of SAMS because it seems like a lot of these patients were coming in and kind of expecting to be given something for everything they have, like a headache, stomachache, cough, everything. And I feel like it would have been very easy for any doctor to just say, okay, take this and this and this and this. But I feel like SAMS doctors really stick to good medicine and really only give these patients what they need and not be guilted into like giving them everything. Um, so I just wanted to point that out. And then my last day was actually day five. Even though the, miss the mission was six days, I wasn't able to participate in the last day because I got very sick. <laughs> and I think it's because I worked with a lot of kids the last day. <laughs> um, day five was my favorite day, though. I love working with kids. Um, the physician I worked with was from England, and she said that she was actually like the uh, resident equivalent in the United States. So it was a new experience for her as well. She was having like experienced physicians come up to her and asking her for consults, and she was just like, I don't know. <laughs> like, she's never done this before. So it was a new experience for me and her, and so it was very nice to share it with her. Um, she saw a lot of kids. I mean, people were just coming in with their entire families, and they have a lot of kids there, so you just see the entire family at the same time. Um, and you, we saw a lot of varieties, like from flus, colds, sore throats, ear pain, to just syndromes that I've really never heard of before or have never seen, just really... Um, heartbreaking things and an example I wanted to share was this woman came in with her um, child who has Down syndrome and there really wasn't much that we could do for him and at that moment of time I mean he, he just has Down syndrome so and I can't even imagine what, it, what it's like to be a parent for um, a child with a disability here but there it just must be like so hard I just can't imagine what she's going through and you could tell she's really trying to um, provide her child with the best care and she's doing everything she can but unfortunately, in that moment, there was really nothing to be done for him. Um, this girl right here said she wanted to be a doctor. So we put her in the chair and gave her the stethoscope. <laughs> and then um, we were giving kids a lot of colorful pens just to have them cooperate with us. Um, so that was all five days that I, was, that I participated in. Um, I wanted to highlight a few of the challenges that I saw from my perspective. Um, I feel like here, just because, I mean, I'm in a medical school with, with a teaching hospital. Um, we really never encounter experiences such as somebody telling you, oh, you can't have this because we don't have it. But there, I mean, just in the first few days, there was a lot of incidents where the doctor couldn't have the medication she wanted because the pharmacy didn't have it. or So you just, just had to compromise a lot of times, which is something I wasn't really used to seeing yet. Um, so great learning experience for me. Um, also, the amount of patients that were there. I mean, again, here we're told, okay, 15 minutes with a patient. But I feel like it was, they were lucky to even get at least five minutes with the patients. Because, and it wasn't even up to the doctors at some points. I mean, people were coming in out of, and out of the rooms, giving you this patient and this, and his brother and sister. It was just really hectic, but it was just a wonderful experience. Really good learning experience for me. Um, and again, I guess that goes with privacy. They're really, I guess privacy was a really a big concern there, um, which is like a really big deal for us here. And again, I think that's because of the amount of the patients there. And... Just the way the clinic is set up and everything. Ooh. <laughs> Don't know what's happening. 
Um, <laughs> another challenge I wanted to talk about was just the culture itself. Um, I mean, even for me, I am from Jordan, but I've never been in a refugee camp before, and I've never been in a situation like this. So it was just a huge culture shock, even for me, um, even just getting off the buses and like the little bit of security we had to go through with the passport checks and everything was just a huge culture shock for me. And it was just something I've never experienced before, and I've never been in a population of just such vulnerable people. Um, and then finally, I have expectations versus reality written here, but what I really um, meant to say, um, what I really meant to say is that, you know, as a medical student, I feel like you're just, always expecting to treat people, cure everybody, um, happy endings. But going on to these trips, you really, I mean, you treat them in that moment of time, but then I feel like you're just not sure what's going to happen next, who's going to follow up with them, um, really if they're going to be take, like following your plans and taking their medications. But I think SAMS does really well with that because, I mean, they do have their clinic open there 24-7. I don't know if it's 24-7, actually, but just there year-round. Um, and did you follow up with your patients, just like Dr. Lyle said? <laughs> okay, and just want to end on a good note. The best part really was just, um, I think, talking to all these patients and all these people. I mean, they've been through so much, and through all that, they were still there, high spirits, talking to us, laughing, giving us hugs, and it was just, they had a strength that I really have never experienced before, and it was just truly wonderful. And then finally, the best part really was just being in um, a group of just wonderful volunteers from all around the world. Um, just learned so much from everybody, and everybody had so much to put on the table, I guess. And it truly was a wonderful experience. And I did want to share this <laughs> one last video. And this was right outside of the Zatari camp. Um, so we weren't really supposed to leave the camp, but I think they made an exception for us, because there was this guy who owned a falafel shop <laughs> with his son. And it was just the best falafel sandwich I've had. <laughs> and he, this was the son making the falafel for us. And it was, he was making it so fast. It was so impressive. <laughs> and finally, as for the future, I think for somebody in my situation, a medical student, I think early exposure to global health is just really important. Um, me, personally, I feel like I'm more likely to participate in the future in um, an organization like this. or. Um, just because of the awareness, um, I mean, I'm now more aware of not only problems abroad, but I guess problems in our own healthcare here. Um, I am more appreciative of my situation, of my medical education, and the fact that I, I can have the opportunity to be um, part of an organization like this and make an impact in the future. And then finally, just working with a diverse population of patients, I feel like you become more, um, I guess, understanding of their culture and. Um, really better at communicating with them, and I guess that just equals better, you provide better care for them, and that's all that matters in the end. And again, just special thanks to all the volunteers and um, to Dr. Amir for having me come here and talk to you today, and this is a picture of us in the bus. <laughs> um, these are all the volunteers from the trip, and this is actually my older sister. She's um, a physician, and this is last year, I think, when she participated with SAMS. So thank you all. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Thank you all um, for, for attending. And um, like I said, the uh, panelists will still be here. If you have any questions, if you want to ask anything, um, please um, feel free to come up. And again, thank you so much. Take care.